Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're starting a new book. This time we're reading Vagabonding Under Sail by William Creluck. This was published in 1951 through Hastings House, and it covers the various voyaging and adventures of three young men, one Ernest Chamberlain, Bill Creluck, the writer, and Don Hodge, and their dog Rum Swizzle, leading sea dog. This book is made possible for us to enjoy today by the kind donation of the Rudy Hassey Library. Preface He that would go to sea would go to hell for a pastime. Samuel Johnson If you are not fortunate enough to be able to cast off from cares and responsibilities and go vagabonding yourself, you can at any rate abandon your wife and family for a while and share our fortunes. We have no wives to abandon, but you can follow us as we leave our desks and take ship with us for distant waters. You will have to forego some of the comforts and securities of home, and there will often be little enough cash in the kitty, but between us, we shall manage. We have tried to be accurate in this tale of content. It is so easy to exaggerate when looking back on anything as changing as the sea, so easy for a breeze to become a gale and a ripple a wave, so easy for discomfort and contentment to change to misery and bliss and excitement to hysteria. In fact, one seldom finds the sensational at sea. After all, its avoidance is one facet of seamanship. In three cases, however, I have had to abandon the truth. In chapter one, the name of the gentleman was not Gibson. In chapter five, the yacht was not called Blackbird, and the names of Jerry Johnny and the rest of the gang in Chapter 21 are fictitious. Chapter 1. The Helmsman's Answer Wouldst thou, so the helmsman answered, learn the secret of the sea? Only those who brave its dangers comprehend its mystery. A quote from Longfellow Content lay peacefully at anchor in the picturesque little harbour of Dartmouth in southwest England. To normal eyes, she must have seemed an ordinary husky cruiser, her tanned sails primly furled. But in the eyes of the four young men who clambered aboard her on that August afternoon of 1948, she was far more exotic. To them, she might have been a wandering Viking ship or a squat golden hind, a castle in Spain, and a passport to adventure. To normal eyes, we four young men were like countless others who swarmed into the buses and streetcars every morning and rested their reputations on an office stool during the endless days. But to ourselves, we were quite different. Pioneers of yesterday or dark-browned buccaneers. Our tweed jackets had become salt-stained jerkins and our suitcases, laden in fact with such prosaic items as socks, shirts and pants, might have been heavy with the spoils of El Dorado. We were in no mood for the prosaic present. We had glimpsed the reward of many years of dreaming. Expedition planning for voyage to Australia via Madeira, Cape Verde Islands, Panama, Galapagos, South Sea Islands and various other places for the collection of flora, fauna, pictorial records and items of interest in auxiliary craft of approximately 30 tonnes has vacancies for several working members, preferably single men, who are willing to invest some capital. Full details can be obtained from box number 7237. Len 
folded the magazine and strolled out to have a look at his plants. For a good many years, he had built up his market gardening business on the outskirts of London, promising himself that one day he would go far beyond the rim of the ocean, where the red of tomatoes would change to the scarlet of hibiscus and the warm air of the hothouse to the trade wind's breath. In another London suburb, Don stared dreamily across the laboratory for the collection of flora, fauna and items of interest. Hmm. While sailing his dinghy between the leafy banks of the Thames, he had often thought of lands which lay beyond the sunset, and of a boat which would carry them there. Now he found the hiss of water from the tap changing to the calling bow wave of a boat, and the rattle of test tubes became the slatting of ropes on a spar. Farther north, in Bedford, Ernest plodded ruminatively around the building site, stricken with the same disease, for had he not determined that when he left the army he would embark on just such an expedition. The sun shone not on the pile of rubble before him, but on some distant coral reef, and the theodolite in his hands became a sextant which would guide him to the earth's far places. In Glasgow, I sat gazing somewhat distastefully at my drawing board. Ever since, as a child, I had discovered the wonder of sailing, I had decided that someday, somehow, I would sail away in a small ship. And here was opportunity. To the South Seas, it had said, and gradually the bulbous lines of the steel barge on the board before me rearranged themselves into the form of a graceful dream ship. I forgot the rain, which shone the cobbled streets outside, and the bobbing umbrella tops became the tussled heads of palms. So it came about that Len and Don and Ernest and I and 300 other stricken strangers wrote our letters of supplication and waited impatiently. After two weeks of torture, a reply came. My name had been included in a list of 12 from which the members of the expedition would be chosen. Could I attend a meeting in London? I most certainly could. I would willingly have attended a meeting in Tibet. The dozen or so people were already assembled when I arrived and we stood about in small gossiping groups, doing our best to talk and behave like ideal members of a small boat expedition, while trying to size up the others. At length, the meeting began with our organiser, a pleasant, toothy young serviceman named Gibson, in the chair. While we arranged ourselves round a massive horseshoe table, Mr Gibson unleashed before him a formidable sheaf of notes, which he ignored for the rest of the meeting. While a beaming smile of welcome swept the room, we were told that the object of the expedition was to sail to the South Seas, collecting specimens of flora and fauna for sale to museums and similar institutions. In this way, it was hoped to defray a large part of the cost of the voyage, with the vague possibility, which became increasingly vaguer on closer scrutiny, of an overall profit. There was also a rather nebulous last-minute offer of the loan of a vessel for the expedition, the only apparent condition being that the owner and his wife be taken as passengers. This seemed a most promising opportunity until Mr Gibson followed up his advantage by suggesting that, if such were the case, he might as well take his wife too. This broached the subject of women on board on a long cruise and it was soon apparent that the majority were not in favour of it. During the fusillade of questions which followed the general statement of policy, 
I noticed a tall, clean-cut fellow approaching a youthful middle age well up in the firing line. His name, I learned, was Len Greenwood. Partially obscured in the murk at the far end of the table sat a fair-haired young man named Don Hodge, listening to everyone else but saying little himself. Next to me, making notes in a small notebook, as I was, sat a long, lean specimen named Ernest Chamberlain. Little did I think that I was to know these three so well. I glanced round the table at some of the others. There was Ivan, a pleasant young chemist who managed to unearth a great deal of inside information about the arrangements, and Whiskers, an enormous moustache behind which lurked a small individual who commanded a certain amount of respect because he had once sailed on a square rigger. I remember too a naval petty officer from the north of England who seemed to have a deep-rooted suspicion of any such scheme, and Gregory, with his balding head, who seemed a most competent person and who was earmarked for the position of skipper of the expedition until he withdrew from the field a few days later. When Mr Gibson had answered some of the questions and sidestepped the others, we adjourned to a nearby bar and began the serious business of the evening. Over the hiccuffing air of the bar drifted drops of salty conversation, while, under the mellowing influence of beer, we developed a certain amount of camaraderie. Mr Gibson wafted from group to group on the tides of conversation, asked us individually whom we considered to be four suitable members of the crew, and each of us, with due solemnity, listed three others and ourselves. It is interesting to recall that Len, Ernest, Don and I each gave those four names. When we were eventually hounded from the bar, the conversation was still of ships and the sea, and returned to our own trip in particular when the meeting was continued in a neighbouring hotel. Here, Mr Gibson was subjected to a harassing fire of somewhat insinuating questions by the suspicious petty officer. These were punctured by Mr Gibson's hoarse stage whispers to those about him lamenting such an unfortunate attitude and promising to straighten this fellow out. At last, the discussion drew to a close and each of us wandered away to be alone with his hopes and with his fears. A few days later, Len, Ernest, Don and I were told that we had been selected as the members of the expedition. Old Dame Fortune had smiled on us again. It only remained for us to ensure that the chance which had come our way was not squandered. That was to prove more difficult than we had expected. So many similar voyages have been planned and so very, very few have ever become more than a sheaf of notes that from the start we anxiously watched the development of our scheme. We held meetings with Mr Gibson to discuss plans and to arrange a schedule and we decided that the offer of a craft would have to be refused after we had discovered that considerable mystery surrounded both ship and owner. At these meetings, something more tangible than the mere forming of plans was taking place. We four were beginning to understand each other and to know our organiser. We held little meetings of our own before each rendezvous with Mr Gibson, and as a result of these, we gradually became aware of something which at the time seemed catastrophic. The expedition would never materialise. Well-intentioned though our organiser might be, we realise now that he had little idea of the task that lay ahead and scant knowledge of small boats. Here then seemed to be the end of our dream, 
The bubble which had grown so large and glossy was soon to burst and drop us back into our ruts. If we were to retrieve the situation, some drastic action had to be taken, and one lazy afternoon, as we were standing in the cabin of Len's newly acquired 50-foot motor yacht, Malo, the action was taken. I am determined, said Len, in his quiet way, to go on this voyage. If the present plan fails, I will sell this boat, and we can undertake an expedition of our own. And as the three of us watched him, a pair of wings grew from Len's shoulders and a halo rested at a jaunty angle on his head. As we had expected, the original venture talked itself to a standstill, and we were ready now and knew what we wanted. And what did we want? We made our aims particular enough to permit accurate planning and general enough to allow alterations in our schemes when necessary. We wanted, above all, to see the places and peoples and customs of the world while it was still in one piece, to follow our bowsprit end wherever fancy took us in search of whatever adventure might lay ahead. How long it would take, we did not know. Perhaps in the course of that quest we might circle the globe, if fortune favoured us. So there was the four of us, each still working at his job, and none of us knowing a great deal about a voyage of this kind, except that it would require hard work, scrupulous attention to detail, and above all, toleration and a sense of humour among ourselves. The first and most obvious problem was the finding of a boat which suited both our purpose and our pockets. The sale of Malo would provide the money with which to buy the boat, and Ernest and Don and I calculated that we could scrape together enough money to see us well on our way. We considered that when that had been exhausted, four young men, reasonably sound physically and even mentally, should be able to earn enough to keep themselves alive. Anyway, it was worth trying. Malo was sold for about $8,000, and with that we started the search for our dream ship. There are few more frustrating or tantalizing pastimes than searching for a boat with severely limited capital at one's disposal. In yachting magazines and brokers' lists, we pored over specifications of beautiful yachts far beyond our means, or of old crates obviously as ripe as a pear, and all the time there was a distant feeling that somewhere in some sequestered bay or distant creek might lie the ship for which we were searching. After two months of poking and prying behind musty bulkheads and dusty timbers, we still had no boat. There had been Dayspring, a converted 65-foot trawler, and Rubicon, an aged but once fine 90-foot catch, and Valkyrian, a husky 50-foot Scandinavian-built catch, and others, but none of them had satisfied us. In one of the Scottish locks on the River Clyde, a friend of mine owned the 40-foot cutter Content, I knew Edward Alcard as an experienced seaman, and his boat as a sturdy, sea-going type fitted out for ocean voyaging, so that when I saw content offered for sale, I cabled Alcard immediately. He replied that he would gladly cancel the sale he was in the process of making and let us have her at a slightly reduced price, preferring to see her used for the type of sailing for which he had rigged her. A cable to Len, a hectic visit to Dartmouth where content was then lying, and the ship was ours. Letters flashed between us discussing the news. The first major obstacle had been overcome. By this time, it was early May 1948. We were determined to leave England that summer, 
for we had seen too many similar ventures postponed till next season, only to become deflated and abandoned. We decided that to avoid the fall gales in the Bay of Biscay, we would leave before the end of August and fixed our departure date as the first fine spell after August 20th, regardless of the state of our preparations. Perhaps our greatest boast is that we kept that resolution. That a creature as graceful and carefree as a dream ship should be limited by the tawdry ties of finance seems unforgivable, but of course our venture was always so conditioned. A man in love with his boat has given his heart to the most demanding of gold diggers. Fortunately, it was a fine spring morning when we assembled to count our pennies, a day on which faith and hope were alive, and a bank balance seemed elastic. Ernest was appointed treasurer, and just in case he should be tempted to abscond with our funds, we arranged that any cheques had to be signed by two people. On that day, our bank account began its constant struggle for existence, and I fear that it was always a somewhat undernourished infant. Len, having already bought content, undertook to provide those items which would become a part of the boat. The chief of these were one or two new sails and the copper sheathing with which we hoped to arrest the voracious Torado worms, affectionately known as the Toreador worms, to Len. Ernest, Don and I would pool our resources to provide for running expenses, a considerable part of this money coming, we hoped, from the sale of some of our belongings. Two sailing dinghies, a motorcycle and a small alien car were offered to the strangely reluctant public. We scraped together our ready cash and our savings and anything else that could be pressed into service. As a result, we thought we could muster about $4,000. Not enough to take us round the world, but as I have said, it was a fine spring morning and $4,000 would see us on our way. We were now reaching the stage when our individual duties aboard would have to be allocated. I think that in content we came nearer making communism work than the communists themselves. There was no proletariat and no bourgeoisie. We had each other and our work to do, and plenty more waiting to be done after it. Matters of general policy were decided by majority vote whenever possible, and the discussions we had on every aspect of our voyage provided some of the most enjoyable moments of all. We shared everything on board, and as individuals, seldom had any money of our own. To encourage free enterprise, however, we made a rule that one quarter of any money earned by any individual during the trip should belong to him. In practice, we never seemed to have been sufficiently solvent to honour those claims without breaking the bank. This allocation of duties presented us with no difficulties. It was characteristic of Len that, though he had bought content, he disclaimed any right to be skipper since he considered his sailing experience to be insufficient. Indeed, all of us were comparatively new to a boat of content's weight, but the rest of us had had varying amounts of experience in smaller craft and dinghies, and there is no better training. Len had, however, a mechanical bent. He seemed to have owned at one time or another most of the old crocks on the roads of Britain, and to have failed to start more motors than anyone else we knew. This valuable experience, coupled with the all-important patient disposition of one who has suffered much at the hands of internal combustion, ideally suited him to the guardianship of our auxiliary motor, with which he thereupon began a beautiful, if uneasy, friendship. 
Len was also a general advisor on Matters Mechanical and acquired some status by being the only person on board who could splice wire. Though some of us had dabbled with coastal navigation, none had used Celestial, and this was, of course, essential to us. Ernest undertook to study it. In his profession of civil engineer, he had been accustomed to handling a theodolite when surveying, and he hoped that the measuring of angles and the twiddling of knobs would come natural to him. As he had had some experience in photography, he was also appointed ship's photographer, and in addition, stoutly maintained to the last that he was ship's carpenter. Don's Bible was a vast tome on knots, thousands of knots, knots of every description and for every purpose, and as we often noticed him happily tying bends and hitches in little pieces of string, the post of bosun fell naturally to him. His was the main responsibility of caring for contents rigging and sails. Since Don's profession was that of a food research chemist, for which he had managed to wangle a Bachelor of Science, he was also charged with the duty of watching over our diet and of making decisions on any matters remotely scientific, from the freshness of an egg to the strategy behind our ceaseless chemical warfare against cockroaches. Finally, he was appointed radio and signals officer and, due to his possession of a battered Spanish guitar, ship's orchestra. Since there remained only one post to fill and only one person without a position, we made the best of a bad job and I was made skipper. By reason of my profession of naval architect, I also advised whenever I thought I could get away with it on the theoretical side of nautical matters. Now we were a crew at last, and a crew with a boat. Our first task was to find a suitable place in which to fit out content. It appeared that Len and Don would not be able to join the ship until shortly before she left England, that Ernest could join immediately and I shortly afterwards. We therefore looked for a place within reach of Len and Don in London and finally chose Chichester Harbour. In order to move the boat there, we arranged our summer vacations to start as soon as possible and on May 30th, Len, Don, myself and my father, who, green with envy, had come down to assist with some of the fitting out, assembled on board at Dartmouth on the southern coast of England, Ernest arriving a few days later. Those first few days on content were full of novelty and anticipation. For many a still evening hour, the tobacco smoke curled up out of the saloon skylight as we talked and planned and talked again of what lay ahead. We began to experiment a little with the gentle art of cooking, but any attempt at finesse was somewhat hindered by the discovery that our total supply of cutlery consisted of two clasp knives, one marlin spike and a bent spoon. However, since Len assured us that he had a plentiful supply in his house, buying more was out of the question, and for five days we ate everything, including soups and stews, with these, and with the help of two toothbrushes used as chopsticks. One evening, our sense of duty overcame our inertia, and we decided it would be prudent to practice hoisting and lowering sail in the dark, getting the night habit, a famous general used to say, even in daylight, Content seemed to have more than her share of strings, but in the darkness, her mast seemed to be a sort of manila cocoon with which we fumbled until we grabbed what appeared to be a reasonable selection of halyards. Ready, came the call. Haul away! We watched the dim outline of the gaff. Not a movement. Uh, when are you going to start hauling? 
I am hauling, but it's not moving. Well, I'm hauling, and either the sail is going up or the mast is coming down. At that moment, there was an apologetic squeak from behind the speaker, and we saw the dark form of the staysail inching up its stay, ashamed of the mistake. We let the staysail go, reshuffled the ropes, and dealt again. This time, we were successful, and the heavy red mainsail rustled above our heads. We were gradually learning. Well, that's the end of the first chapter. And before we go on to the second chapter, I just wanted to share with you the fact that it's a great pleasure to me to be able to share these somewhat unusual, unique and rare nautical books with you. And it's only made possible by the kind donation by Bruce Hassey of his late father, Rudolph's Nautical Library. I know that when Bruce made the offer to me of whether I could take it over and store the books. He had no idea that I might do this with them and share them with so many people. But I hope that it's a fitting memorial to the decades that Rudy spent bringing these books together. And I want to thank the Hassey family for the great trust they placed in me by making me custodian of this incredible library. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, you're getting something from these stories, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or following the link in the podcast description. And there you'll find a link to be able to donate $5 a month to the podcast. That's little more than the cost of a cup of coffee at Starbucks. And that money added together from all the different people from all around the world that are listening to the podcast makes it possible for me to spend approximately 20 hours per week reading the books and editing the shows ready for the podcast. Now, I really appreciate any donations that you're able to make. But if at the moment economic realities mean that it's not possible for you to share money in that way, don't worry about it. I think Rudy and myself will be most happy just to know that people are hearing the stories, learning from the mistakes and the triumphs of forgotten navigators and enjoying a rip-roaring sailing story. Let's get on with the next chapter. Chapter 2. The Charm of It Nothing seems really to matter. That's the charm of it whether you get away or whether you don't, whether you arrive at your destination or whether you reach somewhere else, or whether you never get anywhere at all, you're always busy and you never do anything in particular. And when you've done it, there's always something else to do. And you can do it if you like, but you'd much better not. A quote from The Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. The arrival of Ernest and the end of a spell of bad weather provoked us into venturing on our first passage in content, and on a fine breezy morning we sailed out of Dartmouth. Though this first trip carried us only ten miles round the coast to Brixham, we experienced the evergreen thrill which attends the making of any new port, whether it be Brixham or Bombay, and were thoroughly pleased with ourselves. The following day, another epic passage, two and a half miles this time, took us to Torquay's narrow entrance. With a strong wind behind us, we swept into the harbour to find ourselves in a narrow fairway like the aisle of a church. On both sides, dainty racing yachts bobbed at their moorings, and ahead of us loomed an unpleasantly substantial-looking stone wall. Disquieting thoughts flickered through our minds. Content is a fairly heavy and unwieldy boat for narrow waters, and we pictured her ploughing through a mash of pulped racing craft while maddened owners trembled with rage on the jetties. The helm went down hard. The bowsprit swept accusingly over the boats. Then, suddenly, 
She was round and clear, with ten feet to spare. The same evening, fortified by a bath and a beer at the yacht club, we embarked on our first night passage, and the next morning we scurried into Pool Harbour, out of a rising wind, and anchored within binocular range of a girl's training ship. Len returned to his home from Pool and Don from Cows, leaving Ernest, my father, and myself to take content round to Chichester and sidle into the peace of Burden Pool. Now it was my turn to leave content, for I had to return to Scotland for two weeks to formally surrender my job and to clear up personal odds and ends. During those 14 days at home, I felt quite different from the people about me, as though I belonged to another race or even another planet. John and Jimmy and Steve, working beside me in the office, would still catch the same grumbling streetcar every morning, long after I had returned to the glorious freedom and bustle and chaos of content. As is so often the case, when one has something particular to which they are looking forward, I wondered how others could exist without it. At length, the day came on which I said farewell to companions and girlfriends, clambered aboard my asthmatic old motorcycle, and early one vibrant morning set out on the 500-mile road south to Chichester. While I had been away, Ernest had started work on the boat, and now we continued together. Content looked strange in that basin of glittering, tethered craft, most of which seldom saw the freedom of open water, and she stood out from the others like a pugilist in a ballet troupe. Even though we told none of our acquaintances of our intentions, people began to suspect that we were going foreign. For six weeks, we lived a life of sawdust and shavings, of heterogeneous heaps of junk and the vivid smells of paints and oils, of days which seemed too short and of job lists which were too long. Into this ant heap, Len and Don were often pitchforked at weekends, and visiting relatives and friends walking defenceless down the jetty were assailed with paintbrush and scraper and unceremoniously pressed into service. There were further long discussions on future plans and policy, on colour schemes for the interior or details of the new square rig which we designed ourselves. We rearranged the forecastle and put a new plastic sink and a second-hand kerosene stove in the galley. We built shelves and sideboards wherever we could and removed and sold the washing cabinet in the after-cabin. Better to be dirty, we thought, than cramped. There were additional water tanks to be inserted, the square soles and a new staysail to be ordered, fittings and yards for the square rig to be made, charts to be ordered. We had also to think of navigational instruments. A new chronometer was out of the question, and a new chronometer watch was unobtainable. We would have had to wait two years for one, we were told. So we bought a second-hand one of somewhat doubtful origin and uneven temperament. Our sextant was an old, though unused, model taken from the storage shelves of an instrument factory and given to me on permanent loan by a friend who worked there. Though it looked as if it had been unearthed from the tomb of Tutankhamun, it served as well. It was time, too, to think about our relationship with officialdom, and Ernest and I made a trip to London to pay homage to the gods of bureaucracy. Here we had a pleasant surprise. There seemed to be no pigeonhole to which our case could be conveniently assigned. Official after official looked blankly at us, struggled for a moment with the effort of constructive thought, and passed us on with a shrug. After two days, our total catch was one insignificant form small enough to be thrown back. We did, however, obtain a permit for a three-month supply of provisions 
from an understanding soul at the Ministry of Food. June melted into July and staggered towards August, and all the time the ceaseless sounds aboard the old boat seemed to form an anthem of freedom. The rhythmic tapping of hammer on chisel and the raucous rasp of a scraper, the stiff creaking of unyielding new rope and the wail of unoiled blocks, the urgent voice of the stove when mealtime was near and the impatient drumming of rigging on the mast while we slept below at night all seemed to be reminding us. The first fine spell after August 20th. Hurry, hurry. Towards the end of July, we poured our belongings down the hatches and left Burdenpool, bound for Southwark, where Content sat in the dry dock for a few days while gleaming copper sheets were fitted to her curves. Cows was to be the scene of our final provisioning, and we left Southwark and reached Cows roads in the darkness of a rainy night. In the morning we poked our tussled heads above deck and found to our consternation that Content was the centre of a seething, swirling press of racing yachts, jockeying for the start of their class races. On the shore, by the sacred precincts of the Royal Yacht Squadron, a white-capped official, almost hidden by an enormous megaphone, pleaded with us to remove our boat from the starting line. This seemed a reasonable enough request, and we hastened below to start the motor and run into our berth in the congested anchorage. Whether the motor would have behaved any different had Len been there to coax it, I do not know. I have a great affection for it now, and I like to think that it would have. But Len was not there, and its behaviour was appalling. As we struggled grimly but vainly with it, I glanced up through the engine room hatch and was horrified to see the healing mast and gleaming white sail of a large yacht pass directly over my head. I bounced up through the hatch and looked shorewards again. A boat from a destroyer anchored nearby was just drawing alongside us. They had come over to suggest that we move, for the destroyer was swinging to an unusually large scope of chain and might hit us when the tide turned. By now, the official behind the megaphone was becoming quite oratorical and his pleadings grew steadily more impassioned. I waved, nonchalantly and reassuringly to him, and returned to the dark profanity of the engine room. Twenty minutes later, when the last yacht was safely on its way, the motor came to life and content, blushing to the rail caps, tiptoed to her berth. For the next ten days we were immersed in bewildering lists of provisions and ship stores. Everything had to be remembered, everything from a guitar string to a sextant and from seasick pills to potatoes. As each case of cans was marked and stored away, more came cascading through the hatch. Every item had been carefully chosen and checked. We had tried to be careful from the start and had pruned our lists to eliminate what seemed luxuries or unnecessary items, steadily resisting the sales talk of our very helpful supplier. Len and Don became permanent members of the crew during this spell and on August 16th we were ready for our last trial sail down the channel to Falmouth our port of departure from England. Much still remained to be done, but the ship was seaworthy, so we resolutely put aside our paintbrushes and cans and brought out our oilskins and jerseys. Our channel passage started disarmingly quiet as we trickled out of cows and headed westward along the Isle of Wight shore, and therefore the surprise was greater when Don came below at 4am and prodded me between wind and water. The gaff has broken, he said, conversationally. The, the what? 
snapped like a carrot, said Don with relish. He could see the news gradually seeping through the layers of sleep as I fumbled my way out of the berth and climbed through the main hatch. On deck, Content looked a pathetic sight, with the spar lying jagged-ended on deck. She still rolled mournfully in the calm, which had done what Gales had failed to do. Her rig is a pilot rig, with a jib, staysail, boomless mainsail, and jib-headed topsail. The lack of a boom is a doubtful blessing. Unless the mainsail is new and well cut, there is considerable loss of efficiency on the wind and a loss of effective area when running. On the other hand, though a jibe is more likely to occur when running, owing to the curve in the foot of the sail, the danger from it is greatly reduced, a very comforting thought in bad weather. The long gaff which this rig entails is controlled by a vang led to each quarter, and it was the snubbing of these vangs as the gaff lurched from side to side which caused the mishap. Later, we learned to lead the lee vang forward to hold the gaff in position during a calm. When daylight came, we stowed Content's broken wing and continued beating to the westward under our small spare mainsail. Nobody loved life on the ocean very much that day, for the short channel seas and our wretchedly unaccustomed stomachs cast the curse of seasickness upon us. We also became aware of a further discomfort. Len had been presented with a magnificently full-blooded 80-pound cheese which had, of necessity, been stowed in its box on deck, and now it began to call attention to itself. The channel air was heavy with its stench, and every time we went about on the port tack, the helmsman, already queasy, was engulfed in the aroma. However, to abandon it was unthinkable, and to move it impossible, so we suffered in silence. Our third morning out of cows brought us a fresh problem. Almost zero visibility, a rising wind and sea, and a radio warning of a southwesterly gale combined to give a dismal outlook. Wisps of spray were already finding their way aft to the cockpit, and the first driven drops of rain stung our faces and trickled down our necks. It did not take us long to decide that if it were possible, we would attempt to make port for shelter. But here we faced with an added difficulty. For reasons which at the time had seemed perfectly sound, we had abandoned our compass course during the night to follow the wind as it backed offshore. Now as a result, we did not accurately know our position. Somewhere through the mist to leeward lay the port of Plymouth, but to rush blindly towards it was too dangerous, for it lay on a lee shore. There was, however, the Eddystone lighthouse rising from the sea somewhere near us. If we could find that, we could safely run for Plymouth. Ah, Plymouth! How wonderful it seemed now as the seas grew higher and the wind increased in strength. It meant a sheltered berth and dry clothing and warm food. So we bore away and for an hour peered anxiously through the spray and the scud. Many times we thought we saw the gaunt column of the lighthouse, but each time it was a spectre in the mist and faded as we approached. Then suddenly it was there. The Addistone grew out of the tumbling waters ahead of us. We knew where we were now and thankfully bore away for Plymouth. For two more hours we paced the seas and ran our white flaccid fingers over the chart while the rain pattered on our oilskins and trickled to the cockpit floor. At last, the dim outline of land appeared over Content's bow. 
We could make out the harbour headlands and the line of the breakwater and the grey town behind. We surged triumphantly on, lurched and yawed at the entrance where the storm cone flew and rounded up in the sheltered waters beyond. That night we lay snug and safe, listening to the roaring and cursing of the wind and pitied whatever poor devil was still out there. The next day we beat out between the dark anchored craft and a day later were approaching the headlands of Falmouth Harbour on the last of the afternoon breeze. It was a question of catching our tide through the entrance and into the estuary so we decided to start the engine. <laughs> How easy that sounds but at that time we still had not made our peace with it. To us it was merely a perverse mass of metal with a will of its own. We had developed a sort of hypochondriacal outlook towards it often suspecting an ailment where there was none. On this occasion, for instance, much to our surprise and secret wonder, the thing started. But even to our inexpert ears, it was soon apparent that all was not well. Instead of a contented purring, there came a noise like that of a giant chewing scrap iron. As we peeped apprehensively at it through the hatch from time to time, we were even tempted to try some tinkering, but the brute was still going, so we played safe and waited. We were almost within the entrance of the harbour and were congratulating ourselves on our restraint when, with a derisive snort, the motor died. The gloves were off now. We heaved and pushed and sweated. We pleaded and cajoled, kicked and swore, but to no purpose. We lay becalmed between the headlands while a ripple here and there indicated that the tide would soon be running out. There was only one thing to be done. The dinghy was thrown over the side and Ernest and Don went tumbling after. As dusk came, we towed content inch by inch past the lighthouse. Even now, our troubles were not over. One of the rowlocks straightened out under the load and deposited Ernest in a cursing heap at the bottom of the boat. To prise his head from under the thwart and reshape the rowlock was the work of seconds and... With the help of the kedge, we managed to creep between the headlands, dropped anchor and set an anchor watch in deference to the gathering mist. We were, technically at least, in Falmouth Harbour. The port of Falmouth has much to remind one of the days of sail. It was here, the first port reached when coming from the south, that the tall ships called for orders before continuing further to unload their cargoes. It was here that a tough, seaworthy breed of small boats the Falmouth Key Punt was developed to meet those proud ships in every kind of weather. It was here that Content, modelled on this breed, was born in 1914. Another link with Content's pass was the presence of a pair we were always glad to see, the previous owner, Edward Allcard, and his little yawl, Temptress. We were all waiting for fair weather in which to set out across the Bay of Biscay and were to meet again farther from home. While a new gaff was being made, we attended to the inevitable last-minute preparations. Now everything was ready. Our stores were aboard, our spar was renewed, and the squaresal fittings had arrived at last. A cable to the Air Ministry for a weather report brought a favourable reply, and on August 28, 1948, we weighed anchor and headed for the open sea. Well, that's the end of this episode of Rare Nautical Reads. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any aspirations to get out on the water yourself, find out what it's like to get beyond the horizon, out of sight of land, go over to SpartanOceanRacing.com. 
That's the company that I started seven years ago, which gives sailors of all ages, all backgrounds, and all skill levels the opportunity to get onto 60 and 80 foot boats with professional crew and find out how to safely and effectively take on a long distance offshore passage. If you can't get out on the water, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and there you'll find all the podcasts, you'll find blogs, you'll find gear reviews and also the Spartan online seamanship training syllabus, which we've been working on now for over a year. This means every month we put out a 45 minute to one hour video, very nitty gritty, very in detail, looking at exactly how you complete tasks on the boat, how systems work, how to navigate electronic gear, dealing with problems, fixing things, the engine, it's all in there. Um, the last, I guess, is YouTube. If you go over to YouTube forward slash The Mariner, also lots of stuff going on there and lots more of the video blogs there when we're out at sea moving around in these boats and you can see what we're up to. So don't let it just be in the stories. Connect with us on social media, connect with us um, on the water and make it a reality for yourself. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope you're safe and sound and look forward to sailing with you soon. Cheers. Cheers.